Hello and welcome to the second of our series of podcasts on insurance regulation. Today we're dealing with insurance recovery and resolution and I'm joined by Lucy Aikenley, who is a counsel in our global restructuring team and an expert in financial services resolution and insolvencies, who's been involved in some of the highest profile situations in the market over the last 20 years. My name's Kate McInerney. I'm a partner in our non-contentious insurance team here at A&O, and we're delighted to have you join us today. So as I mentioned, this is the second in a series of podcasts regarding distressed insurers. The first one dealt with changes to the Financial Services and Markets Act, which was set out in the Financial Services and Markets Bill, now legislation, which was given in the Royal Assent just last week on the 29th of June. And in that piece of legislation, we saw an expansion of the write-down power in relation to insurers and the introduction of a ban on contractual termination in insurer insolvency proceedings. That podcast, if you're interested, can be found on the ANO website. And today, though, we're talking about the UK Treasury's proposal for an insurance recovery and resolution regime. So if this is not the only change on the horizon dealing with distressed insurers, Lucy, why is there so much focus on this at the moment? Yes, if you've been following the changes to the Financial Services and Markets Act, you'll have noticed that there is a lot going on and it does beg the question, why now? These are turbulent times, as we've seen from recent experience with Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank. Elsewhere in Europe, there have been cases of insurers getting into trouble recently And the most obvious example of that is Eurovisa in Italy, which has been placed into special administration in Italy. But both the FISMA changes and the proposed recovery and resolution regime have more to do with the UK wanting to align itself with international standards. In particular, the Financial Stability Board's key attributes of effective resolution for financial institutions. So in January of this year, the Treasury published a consultation paper proposing the introduction of a resolution regime similar to the one for banks that has been recently used in respect of Silicon Valley Bank, but for insurance companies. And that's what we're focusing on today. We also plan to tell clients about the outcome of the review of Solvency 2, the prudential regulation regime for insurers where the latest news is that the Bank of England has published the first of its consultation papers on the implementation of the Solvency UK, and there is a draft regulation that has been published by Treasury, but that piece is for a podcast for another day. So what is the proposed insurance of resolution and recovery regime, Lucien, and when do we think it's going to be introduced? So the first in terms of timing, these changes are at an early stage. The consultation paper issued by Treasury, as I said, started in January of this year and it closed in April and the Treasury is yet to publish its response. We do know that the introduction of the regime would need to be achieved by way of primary legislation. And as you know, Kate, all of that takes time. So we're not expecting to see anything actually on the statute books until 2024 at the earliest. In terms of what the proposed regime is, As mentioned a moment ago, it's driven by international standards and in particular is based on the core elements of the Financial Stability Board, 
considers to be necessary for an effective resolution regime. These are set out in its key attributes for effective resolution for financial institutions. In light of that, we would therefore expect the regime to be broadly in keeping with what is being proposed for insurance companies more globally. Furthermore, the regime broadly follows the resolution regime for banks and other in-scope institutions, which we already have under the Banking Act 2009. But this regime has got differences to reflect the different capital structure and risk profile for insurers. So while it looks like a brand new regime, its structure and architecture is based heavily on the bank regime, and that has been on the statute book for over a decade now. It's also worth noting that the Banking Act 2009 itself was based largely on the European Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive. Similarly, whilst the UK is no longer bound by EU legislation, the insurance regime is broadly similar to the resolution regime proposed for European insurance companies who are subject to solvency too. And that is set out in the draft European Insurance Recovery and Resolution Directive that was published in 2021. So in a nutshell, the regime consists of five statutory resolution objectives, four resolution conditions, four stabilisation options or powers, and two additional tools. In terms of the objectives of the regime, these very much track the statutory objectives of the existing bank resolution regime, but there is an emphasis on policyholder rather than depositor protection. The five objectives are, firstly, protecting and enhancing the stability of the financial system of the UK, including in particular by preventing contagion and protecting the ability of those who are or may become insurance policyholders to access critical functions, including the continuity of services on existing policies. The second objective is protecting and enhancing public confidence in the stability of the financial system in the UK. Thirdly, protecting public funds, including minimising reliance on extraordinary public financial support. Fourth, protecting policyholders of the firm in resolution, including those covered by an insurance guarantee scheme. And lastly, avoiding interfering with property rights in contravention of a convention right within the meaning of the Human Rights Act. So against that backdrop of those five statutory objectives, the insurance regime sets out a series of stabilisation powers, which will be available to a new resolution authority, but in effect the Bank of England wearing another hat, and those powers can be used in cases where certain stabilisation conditions would be met that would justify the use of those powers. The Treasury consultation paper also deals somewhat with resolvability and recovery and resolution planning. Again, picking up on the key attributes that I mentioned earlier, but it recognises that the PRA has already undertaken a significant planning work with some of the UK's key insurers in this regard. There's lots there, but shall we start with the stabilisation conditions, Lucy? What are they? Yeah, that's a good place to start. So there's four of them, like I said, and all of them would need to be met in order for an insurer to be placed into resolution. This ensures that there is this high bar that has to be met in order to justify 
the exercise of the stabilization powers. So running through each of these four conditions. Firstly, the PRA assesses that the insurer is failing or likely to fail. Secondly, the Bank of England, wearing its resolution authority hat, assesses that having regard to timing and other relevant circumstances, it is not reasonably likely that ignoring the stabilisation powers, action will be taken by or in respect of the insurer that would result in the first condition ceasing to be met, i.e. that the firm is no longer failing or likely to fail. Thirdly, the Bank of England, again as resolution authority, assesses that the exercise of the stabilisation powers is necessary having regard to the public interest in the advancement of one or more of the resolution objectives that I talked about earlier. And lastly, the fourth condition is that the Bank of England, again as resolution authority, assesses that one or more of the statutory resolution objectives would not be met to the same extent if the stabilisation powers were not deployed. I think here, the key thing to note is that third condition, the one that the exercise of the stabilisation powers is necessary having regard to the public interest in the advancement of the resolution objectives. This means that the insurer has to be important. The resolution tools in the IRR are for the most significant operators in the market, and that's really what, in our view, distinguishes this regime from the changes to the Financial Services and Markets Act that yourself and Jennifer touched on in the earlier podcast. Okay, so four conditions. What happens if those conditions are met? What are the stabilisation powers that are available to the Resolution Authority? So you meet your four conditions in light of the five objectives. We then turn to the four stabilisation powers. Again, those familiar with the recovery and resolution regime for banks will have a bit of deja vu at this point. Uh, the four stabilisation options being proposed are the following. So starting with bail-in. The Bank of England, as resolution authority, would be able to propose the write-down of an insurer's liabilities including policyholder liabilities or the conversion of such liabilities into equity or other ownership interests in the insurer. They could do that in a manner that respects the hierarchy of claims in a liquidation. The aim of bail-in is that losses should be allocated to the firm's shareholders and subordinated debt holders before liabilities to other creditors are written down. It's the same as the bail-in tool in the bank resolution regime. Where the FSCS protected policyholders are written down, the intention would be that the FSCS will provide top-up payments to be held on trust to pay such policyholders. The second stabilisation option is a transfer to a private sector purchaser. So here the Bank of England is the resolution authority would be able to transfer the shares of the firm or all or part of the business of the failing insurer to a private sector purchaser. The transfer would be done by way of statutory instrument and would not require a court order. Any such transfer would override any right of veto by third parties and would switch off certain events of default that might otherwise be triggered by the transfer. 
There would, however, uh, be certain safeguards, which I can touch on a bit later. The third stabilization option or power is the transfer to a bridge institution. So here, similar to the second option, the Bank of England would be able to transfer the shares or all or part of the failing insurer to a bridge institution, but this time as a temporary measure. The idea here is that the transfer would buy time for due diligence and valuation on the business. And so the business where it's transferred to a bridge institution, that institution would of course need the relevant part 4A FISMA permissions and it would be subject to the supervision of the PRA and FCA. The idea being that it's a temporary measure for an onward transfer to a private sector purchaser. The fourth and last stabilisation option is temporary public ownership. This is very much a procedure of last resort and the government proposes that the failing insurer could, in the absolute worst circumstances, be placed into temporary public ownership. In addition to those four stabilisation options that I've just mentioned, there are these two additional tools that can be used in combination with one or more of those options. The first is a balance sheet management vehicle. This would allow the transfer of all or part of the business of the fading insurer to a special purpose vehicle. That vehicle would act as a warehouse for the relevant assets and liabilities with a view to maximising their value through either an eventual sale or an orderly wind down. And then the second additional tool is an insurer administration procedure. This is not to be confused with normal administration under our Insolvency Act 1986. This procedure is equivalent to the bank administration procedure under Part 3 of the Banking Act. It would be used where, pursuant to the transfer stabilisation options that I've just mentioned, part of the business is left behind with the original insurer and the purpose would be to ensure that the original insurer, now acting by its special administrator, provides support to the bridge insurer or private sector purchaser in relation to any of those critical services that have been left behind. Let's talk a bit about scope. Is it just going to be UK incorporated insurers who could be subject to this regime, Lucy? Yeah, that's a good question and one that we have been asked a lot since the consultation paper came out. Um, the answer is no. Um, it will be much broader than that. And that is consistent with the scope of the bank resolution regime as well. So although UK incorporated and authorised insurers are clearly in scope, other than those that are not within the remit of the Solvency II reforms and friendly societies are also out of scope, but the regime will also include within its scope mixed financial holding companies, insurance holding companies, mixed activity insurance holding companies, regulated entities within the corporate group of an insurer and other non-regulated entities within the corporate group of an insurer, but also UK branches of foreign insurers. So on paper, the proposed regime is capable of applying very broadly. But, of course, the actual scope of the regime in practice will likely be curtailed by that high bar that the overall architecture of the regime imposes that I mentioned earlier. 
So to take the example of a UK branch of a foreign insurer, to us, it seems pretty unlikely that that high bar would be met in relation to an undertaking that hadn't been required to set up as a subsidiary here in the UK. And I would say that this view is supported by the fact that the similar regime for banks and building societies under the Banking Act has only been used three times since it was introduced over a decade ago, and actually only twice if you ignore one example which went straight into bank insolvency without using any of the stabilisation options like those I ran through earlier. Furthermore, the most recent example was in the context of Silicon Valley Bank UK, and that was really a very unique situation given it's important to the tech sector in the UK. So we don't expect the regime to be used other than for those that are systemically important and there is a real serious concern as to viability. And as an insurance lawyer, I can say this, but of course, insurers are much, much safer <laughs> than those renegade banks. <laughs> so um, one of the tools that we're really fond of in the context of insurance companies is obviously insurance business transfer schemes. Would a business transfer of the type contemplated by the transfer stabilization powers be achieved by the same tools that insurers currently use and are familiar with today, so Part 7 insurance business transfer regime? Yes, that's another question that we have been asked uh, since the consultation paper came out. And the short answer is no. The proposed regime would allow the resolution authority to make the transfer by way of a transfer instrument, which crucially does not require court approval. Obviously, this is very different to the way things work today under Part 7, which is a mandatory regime for insurance business transfers. But the problem with Part 7 is that it takes time and is cumbersome, um, requires a court process, and it involves policyholder communications and the preparation of expert reports. By contrast, the stabilisation transfer process is very different and is designed to enable implementation very quickly. And so insurers now being subject to bail-in, that sounds scary, doesn't it? What protections will there be for creditors? Yeah, it is potentially quite scary for people and people should remember that this is proper bail-in, as I would call it, and not the bail-in light, like the changes to FUSMA, which were discussed by Jennifer in our first podcast. So although these bail-in measures are quite drastic, as you say, their consultation paper does refer to some protections and safeguards for creditors. They are not set out in any detail in the consultation paper, but it appears and we would assume that they will be similar safeguards to those that exist in the Banking Act regime under the Banking Act 2009 and the subordinate legislation that accompanies it. So these protections we think will include certain restrictions or safeguards on partial property transfers. These would be designed to ensure that at least a partial property transfer does not create implications for set-off and netting provisions and, of course, the associated opinions that I have to draft every day. But secondly, um, there is the benchmark of the no creditor worse off safeguard. 
And this is designed to ensure that creditors have a right to compensation where they do not receive at a minimum what they would have received in a liquidation. The proposed regime in this respect would allow the Treasury to appoint an independent valuer to determine the level of compensation to be paid to creditors. But to be honest, Kate, we'll need to see the detail of all of this as and when we get the Treasury's response. Um, But we do anticipate that those who deal with insurance companies will want to pay close attention to those protections and the scope of them, particularly given some of the quirks in the FUSMA changes that, that yourself and Jennifer touched on in our first podcast. It is an area to watch. We haven't really talked that much about resolvability, but we did mention it, Lucy. What are the key points there, would you say? So the key attributes framework provides for two things, uh, broadly speaking. So firstly, regular resolvability assessments, which would determine and address barriers to resolution. And secondly, ongoing recovery and resolution planning for Um, at a minimum, those systemically important insurers. It's worth noting that the PRA already works with insurance firms to develop recovery and resolution plans and, in some cases, resolvability assessments. The PRA's fundamental rules includes a nod to resolvability already and this has been used by the PRA to ensure that planning for recovery and resolution is adequate. But the government intends to build on this work in ensuring that the requirements in the key attributes framework are met and it expects that insurance firms may need to carry out some additional work to support the creation of resolution plans because they would relate, of course, to the use of the new powers that the PRA doesn't currently possess and therefore does not factor into its current work. There's so much there. With all of that, where does it leave us, Lucy? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to take in, I understand. But um, but the good news is, at this stage at least, it is a watch and wait. Um, we, of course, will be working with our clients to review the detail of the proposals as they evolve and once we see the Treasury's response to its consultation. Um, we'll be working with clients to consider their specific vulnerabilities and their risk position And when, for example, we know exactly how things like netting, set-off and security interests are to be treated and uh, hopefully protected. And we'll be considering also whether and to what extent any repapering is required in that context. I would say in the meantime, clients should listen to these podcasts and the others in the series. And we also have a very detailed accompanying bulletin on the website so it is all there but people should just get in touch with us if they have any questions absolutely great plug uh, (laughs) to end our conversation thanks so much lucy and hopefully we'll be back soon with another in the series on insurers and insurance regulation 